Hey guys, this is Akash Maduri, and I'm super excited to be bringing to you the first episode of Podcast by Akash, which is a new project that I've been working on. And these, this episode and future episodes will be uploaded both to YouTube and Spotify. So whichever platform you prefer, uh, just keep listening on them. Uh, you'll be able to get any future episodes there as well. And in this first episode, I'm speaking to a friend of mine, JJ Ling, about beauty in chess, uh, concepts of subjectivity and objectivity, and how this extends not just only to the chessboard, but also outside the chessboard in life in general. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm sure you will as well. So without further ado, here is episode one. Hey guys, I am with my buddy, uh, JJ Ling. JJ is a chess expert, also a great instructor of chess. And as in addition, he is a PhD candidate in philosophy at Stanford. Thank you so much for joining, JJ. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm super excited for this topic. Yeah, so just to kind of kick off the topic on what we're going to be discussing... Uh, this all really started, I would say, a couple months back when we were we were both playing in a blitz tournament in Chicago. I think we might have had uh, we might have had a beer or two during lunch um, just to uh, you know lubricate the creativity. And we were talking about the just chess beauty um, subjectivity versus objectivity. And I mean, I thought that this would be a great uh, conversation to start off the podcast and um let me just ask you the question to kick it off what do you think why is this important i mean wh what does this all matter i know people typically think of chess as this like scientific and calculative game but uh for you what is beauty in chess yeah so i think so I hear two questions that i want to answer both of one is what is beauty in chess and one is why is this important um, I might be able to tell you what's beautiful without telling you why it's important. Um, so I think that what makes this topic so interesting is that a lot of us, when we think of beauty, we might think of things that we also think of as subjective, as matters of taste, that what somebody finds like good art might just be their taste. Some people have weird tastes, some people don't. Uh, so when people think about beauty, they often think of the subjective realm of matters of taste, of um, what your tastes are and my tastes are might be different. In contrast, when we think of the objective, we think of matters of fact, that things are just right or wrong. So I think that beauty in chess is such an interesting area because so many chess players, amateurs and grandmasters alike, will talk about certain moves, studies, plans, combinations as beautiful. But there is this objective component. Do they work or not? Does the computer tell you that you're slightly better or much better? They can even put a numerical evaluation that typically seems right. So it's something where the subjective and the objective really come together. And not every computer good move strikes us as beautiful. So how is it that you can have these objective considerations and these aesthetic considerations of beauty? That's, I think, 
the topic that I find interesting. And I think what's important about it is that it suggests that beauty need not be subjective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just to quickly piggyback off of that, I know you and I were discussing this um, earlier before we got on this call. Um, Just being able to distill, okay, what are those elements that comprise of beauty and aesthetics in chess? And uh, there's this book that I recently found. It's called Secrets of Spectacular Chess by uh, Jonathan Levitt and David uh, Friedgood, uh, where they break down four elements of chess aesthetics, I would say. Uh, number one is uh, paradox. So, for example, material imbalances, maybe giving up a queen uh, just to achieve an objective or maybe even giving up a queen for a pawn. That is somewhat paradoxical when we're taught that the queen is worth nine points and a pawn is worth one. Uh, Geometry, uh, just the physical formation and alignment of pieces, how those constellations show up on the chessboard and what they mean to us from a visual perspective, which... Uh, you know, maybe maybe engines really don't have uh, an appreciation for this because they don't see the board the way we do. Um, mm. I don't know. That could be another discussion in and of itself. But uh, the other two points, uh, depth, uh, just how how far in advance the move, uh, the move's purpose is made clear and uh, flow, the absence of many confusing variations. So uh, this this idea that you alluded to about being able to break down the subjective into the objective, um, maybe that's kind of the the appeal for a lot of chess players. Um, being able to create works of art in a very disciplined and technical manner. And um, of course, the game of chess attracts people from a wide variety of Uh, different backgrounds but I think for those that don't play chess they would be surprised to to hear how much of a creative art it really is yeah or and I think even for some contemporary chess players they might be surprised to hear of what a creative art it used to be um the Hmm. game centuries old so if we go back to like the 19th century or what's often called the romantic era of chess how would you describe those games sexy <laughs> yeah <laughs> very yeah, very uh, sexy what's going on How, like like to walk us through what one of those games looks like so those games are um it was during a time where i guess the uh, defensive techniques weren't quite up to par uh, it did take uh, many decades uh for uh chess players as a whole the professionals to really develop the defensive techniques and intuitions required So uh, back in the 19th century, you would see these uh, swashbuckling sacrifices all over the place, like giving up uh, all the minor pieces, all of the queens uh, or the queens and the heavy pieces. uh, And it was just a really like spectacular spectacle. And uh, oftentimes some of these games that you'll see, um, Paul Morphy, for example, um, Anderson, Anderson. Prince Dadian, who uh, who is uh, not so well known of a uh, of a player, but 
uh, Prince Dadian was this uh, prince. I forget where he was from, uh, but some of his games are just absolutely out of this world. Um, so beautiful. And um, it contrasts, I guess, to uh, what we have today. And I'll kind of let you discuss that. And uh, to your point of, oh, a lot of modern day players would be surprised when we're talking about creativity. Yeah, so I think the biggest reason why, and I guess I alluded to this in the beginning, is the computer. Mm -hmm. The dreaded computer. So towards the end of the 20th century, Deep Blue, an IBM computer program, beat then-world champion Gary Kasparov in a match. And not only did computers begin to assert their dominance over humans in the game of chess, which has only shot up today in the past 20 years, but they did it in a way that was, frankly, depressing. Mm -hmm. The way that they were playing was this very, I mean, it was algorithmic. It was finding very long concrete and sometimes very counterintuitive answers to any question or problem or threat that were posed by humans. A lot of these were very surprising moves that didn't follow any sense of like logic that we had at the time or any sort of theory or understanding of the game. Instead, it was just this very brute force, see what works, what doesn't work, calculate thousands of moves per second approach. And What's depressing is that just means if there is an answer to your problem that you're posing as a chess player, the computer will find it and they will find it fast, which is a very different way of approaching the game than trying to see the board as something geometric, as something with logic, as something with plans and purposes, and reason through using these very human reasoning skills to find that answer. And just, just knowing that if there's a flaw in your system of thinking, the computer will find it, kind of takes a lot of the fun out of chess for lots of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think the, the way that the, the game has evolved from a human perspective with the, with the emergence of engines, like, um, I guess, Deep Blue was the first one, but, like, Fritz, uh, Houdini... Uh, Stockfish, all of these household engine names, um, I kind of feel like it's um, sterilized the game at the super um, super grandmaster level. And um, not to throw shade at Magnus Carlsen, uh, but to me, his game really isn't quite as inspiring as uh, someone like an Alexei Shirov, for example, <laughs> or even a, like a Gary Kasparov, you know? Yeah, so Magnus, even if he's not known for being one of the players who like spends hours and hours crunching moves on the computer, he was informed. He grew up, Magnus Carlsen is just turned 30, so he really grew up as a chess player in the age of computer dominance. And what that means is instead of growing up in the shadow of the romantic players or the many generations of players to follow them who were increasingly skilled defenders, but first and foremost skilled attackers, Magnus grew up with this kind of wisdom that we got from the deep blue match with Kasparov. The wisdom being that unless you are confident your attack has no problems in it, bank on the computer finding a problem which is very different wisdom than the conventional wisdom and the pre- in like the Soviet reign of chess that Kasparov came up on, where you had very strong defensive players, but 
there wasn't this kind of, if anything, there was this overall bias towards the attack. If you're attacking, at least you have attacking chances. Um, but this notion of chances takes on a different hue when you're looking at computers that aren't thinking in terms of chances, but in terms of concrete evaluative lines. Part of what made Magnus such an impressive player during his rise to the World Chess Championship was that he is a skilled defensive player, but also a very stubborn player who was very happy eschewing complicated variations, eschewing games that were unclear where he might have chances, and instead holding on to the slightest edge in a bare-bones position for seven hours and grinding you down with a really strong level of willpower and ability to come up with problems to pose you in the endgame. So this kind of computer-like game where he was turned off by the kinds of things that previously excited chess players and instead going off the kinds of attacking methods that are less about chances or advantages and more about just willpower and fatigue isn't inspiring from the perspective of somebody who wants to see something really cool happen on the board. Mm-hmm. Right. And so just shifting gears a little bit, you know, uh, I think the chess world was uh, really shocked. And I myself was so shocked in, I believe it was 2017, um, when Google's, uh, one of Google's offshoot companies, DeepMind, released uh, a set of 10 games. I think the paper had 10 games between a new computer that no one had ever heard of before alpha zero versus at the time um stockfish which um i I think stockfish was probably like 3400 maybe high 3300s at the time and uh before alpha zero i i don't really think there was anyone that could question stockfish's dominance and uh, to me at least it seemed like that was the inevitable perfection of chess that's what perfect chess looked like and then yeah and then like alpha zero comes and i dude i'm i'm just speaking for myself and (laughs) feel free to chime in here but when i saw those games i thought i was i thought i was watching uh chess the way a god would play it (laughs) (laughs) yeah um so for those of you who haven't seen the Alpha Zero games, it was as if we returned to the Romantic era with every single lesson we've learned along the way in terms of defense, positional understanding. But at at the heart of hearts, we're still playing a very intuitive, speculative game where sacrifices, risks were taken, all the things that makes chess fun were being played but with all of the skills we picked up along the way still being mastered. And so I think what really needs to be stressed with Alpha Zero for those people who haven't really followed the rise of chess computers is that it's not just that Alpha Zero is better than Stockfish because there have been computer programs better than previous computer programs every few years, going back to Deep Blue. The point is that the way that those computers were getting better was just that the algorithms were getting tightened up. They were able to look at more moves per second faster and with more depth. But what AlphaZero was doing wasn't just more of the same but better and faster, but an entirely different approach to the game that somehow made it appear more human than human to the exact opposite of the way Stockfish was playing. Right. And 
I think I think the crazy thing about this for me, um, and I'm definitely going to be butchering this, but uh, just uh, previously, like when you look at stockfish, that to me felt like, you know, how chess should objectively be played. And then you have these neural nets like Alpha Zero, uh, Leela Chess, which just defeated Stockfish in the TCEC Super Final, which um, ended uh, a week or two ago. Um, you have this seemingly more subjective, more quote unquote human way of playing. And now this just, I guess, brings to uh, to the surface the question of like, how do you really bridge that objectivity and subjectivity? Because clearly, uh, clearly, it would be difficult to say that these neural nets are not playing chess objectively, uh-huh. despite the fact that it feels so subjective. Right. Um, yeah. So that's um, so that's a great question, and I think what it shows is that these concepts of objective and subjective really have more interplay than you might intuitively think, and not just about chess, but in general. So, you know, if we think of like, what are the objective scientists, you know, sciences rather, not, I'm sure most scientists are objective, I hope, but um, the what are the objective sciences? So if you think of the hard sciences, the empirical sciences, um, but, you know, some work in philosophy of science and elsewhere in the 20th century really suggested, look, you know, if you think of the subjective as the realm of like value judgments, those are all throughout the empirical sciences. Whether we decide to make like 0.05 or 0.01 or 0.10 the statistical significance, which is a human choice um, that will make for different reasons in different cases, that's going to determine what what discoveries count as statistical significant, statistically significant. And we might think, well, here I want the alpha level to be higher because the risk of getting this wrong is great. And here it can be relatively low because the risk of getting it wrong is low. Well, those sorts of judgments of risk, higher, lower, when to make those cutoffs, those are value judgments. Those are subjective decisions. That doesn't mean that there's no right or wrong. It just means that these are human subjective choices entering into what we still think of as the objective. And on the flip side, when we think of something like art, um, you know, there's plenty of differences in taste, but then we still also think that there's these ideas of refined taste or aesthetic education and music appreciation, for example, that come from learning to appreciate and understand certain things and see what makes them good. And what we're doing there is we're bringing people up to appreciate the good. And it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that, you know, there isn't a lot of subjective stuff going on into determining what we decide good art is or good art isn't. Like, look at the history of the art world being dominated by men. Is it also happened to be men that were in control of determining what the good art was? It's super subjective. But there's this idea that, like, we're not just telling you what taste you should have, but giving you objective things to appreciate about the art to develop your taste. So the subjective objective clash seems to have been going on for a long time in a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess, like, comparing chess to art, um, for me, where the the uh, the analogy gets a little bit blurry is 
in the fact that, okay, when you're playing chess, the objective is checkmate. And that is very clear cut. Um, if you're listening to music, for example, the, what exactly is the objective there? And then maybe does that mean that assigning these value judgments gets a little bit fuzzier when that objective isn't so clear cut? Yeah, so this sounds like a distinction that uh, goes back to Aristotle, if not Plato. I, all the ancient Greeks are the same to me. Sorry, <laughs> sorry to my ancient <laughs> philosopher friends. Um, this notion of techne, which I think the Greeks used to like the like, developing of art and skill. But now we might think that there's difference between the artist and the craftsmaker and like trying to articulate what that difference was, was an interesting problem. So you might think that when the objective is clear that what you're doing is something more like developing a craft, that like what makes the sculptor different than the person who makes bowls for eating? Well, one has a very clear objective. Um, if the bowl, look, if the bowl it can successfully be eaten out of, that's a good bowl. If it yeah. can't, you've made a mistake. But for art, when there's not really clear what that objective is. So I think that, um, so seeing the ways in which like the honing of chess might be more like a craft where we can definitely appreciate the incredibly beautiful bowls, but at the end of the day, whether or not it's a good bowl can be evaluated by whether or not we can eat out of it. And art, I'm not really sure what that objective fundamental evaluation is. Mm-hmm. And... I, I'm I always bring these conversations back to chess because uh, I I feel like chess is such a great petri dish for life in so many ways. Um, when you don't really know, okay, so just taking a step back, chess like on the macro level, yes, the objective is to deliver checkmate. Uh, mm -hmm. But just imagine yourself, you know. Uh, sitting at the board in like a long tournament um you've got like an hour on your clock your opponent does and you're you're really wrapped up in this super super complicated middle game um i guess you can sort of picture like a dark forest for example and when you're walking through that dark forest when you're navigating that middle game yes you know you have to get you have to get out of the forest um, and that goes to the ultimate objective of checkmate. But you don't really know what to do. Like, what are those micro level goals that are going to get you there? And maybe the navigation of that dark forest is really where some of the subjectivity um, can be brought back in because you can't calculate your way through the dark forest. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if there is... Uh pattern that emerges on the board where you realize I play this forcing move. So a move, let's say it's a check, and now you only have two ways to get out of check. And then either of those two ways, I play another move and it's a check and you have zero ways to get out of check. So it's checkmate. Then that's a nice example of a calculation. I didn't really have to grasp anything beyond if I do this, then they do this or that. And whether they do this or that, I'll do this and it's over. That, that's sort of what we mean by calculation. And computers can do what I just described thousands of times per second. <laughs> um, but we can't do that thousands of times per second. So if there's no very concrete end to that, we have to do something else. So how would you describe what you're doing when you're navigating through that dark forest? 
very it's it's very difficult to completely distill but i would say i try to and i'm sure you're the same way jj uh try to recognize different elements of the position that look familiar so maybe Mm. it's maybe it's like um a pawn chain for white uh, a dark dark squared pawn chain for white um in conjunction with a light squared bishop so you know that the light squares are going to be um uh, they're going to be weak but as long as you have that bishop they're going to be okay um being Mm -hmm. able to take uh those different positional elements and kind of piece them together um is i guess it falls under that really intuitive category where you you're not necessarily calculating everything. I mean, sure, you have to calculate just to make sure you're not blundering. Um, but for the most part, it's more like, how do I feel about this position? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of players, in, when describing these sorts of things, will describe features of their positions using very evaluative terms like good or bad. Or even just more like feelings-based words. And it's funny thinking of these cold, calculating chess players, many of whom probably have difficulty articulating their feelings in their normal life. Um, no offense, but <laughs> some actually some offense. Um, but then it comes to the chessboard, and they're just they come to life and are saying things like, Yeah, the placement of that bishop locked in with the pawn chain like gave me a bad feeling in my stomach. Or like that just looked gross. Like using these feeling words then they're usually negative. That's like, so showing something subjective or like what we're intuiting just isn't that, oh, something strikes us as suboptimal, but that it's disgusting, it's problematic, it's sexy to use how you describe the romantic games. Um, these, these, are, these, are, these are feelings words. So it's arguing to that subjective element. And I've even seen people try to into it not just their own feelings but even like kind of personify their pieces and be like all right where does my knight want to be and using this sort of intuition where like good players can glance at a board and just be like "Ooh, that knight doesn't want to be there um mm-hmm. or like or like we need to figure out how to get the knight to that square because that one's defended by a pawn or um well, this is the kind of position that won't make my rooks happy, so I feel comfortable sacrificing one for a knight. Um, or I need to move these pawns to make my rook happier. So this this is a kind of funny way to think of chess players talking or thinking because it's so much the opposite of like the caricature of the chess player as being so cold calculating and seeing five moves ahead. Because it doesn't matter if you see five moves ahead if you don't know what to make of that position, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And like, I I would say that if you if you don't have that intuition, your calculations, you're probably going to be barking up the wrong tree more often than not. Yeah. And this was something that I think I was very interested as a kid, as many are in calculation based tactical games, solving very complicated problems that had concrete solutions. And what I found as I was coming back to chess a couple years ago was that I was finding some incredible combinations, but I was burning half of the time on my clock on one single move. And when it worked and I found the right combination, that was great. But when it didn't, I just spent half my time and had nothing to show for it. And sharpening these intuitions of being like, oh, 
these are just like ways I can see that these pieces want to be on better squares. These are better ways to use my pawns. Those are things that once you see them, you can actually do quickly. Once they become to feel natural to you, you don't have to burn a lot of time calculating and seeing 10 moves ahead and thinking really hard. And I think that's how those intuitions come up, this idea of something feeling natural. Right. And you uh, you and I have been the victim of uh, numerous prodigies uh, <laughs> in over-the-board tournaments, but uh, it shows in the way I think kids do uh, prepare and just improve in strength. They are just such calculative machines, and they're, they're so hard. It is terrifying. I mean, it's a little bit depressing if we're thinking back to like the stockfish analogy um, mm-hmm. of just having to play against them. But that uh, that positional intuition, I, I feel like that blossoms with age and with maturity. Yeah, totally. Um, I have two thoughts there. One is how like most of my most of the times I've even held on against some of these prodigious kids have been when I've relied on like a superior positional understanding. Like I had a game at the Amateur Team North against uh, Dimitar Mardov, who is, he's 11 years old, I believe, and he's like, he's almost a FIDE master. He's like, well, he's definitely a national master. So he's, he's a terrifying machine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Delightful kid, but terrifying. But, but... What ended up happening in the game was I made a very, I very quickly and intuitive decided to sacrifice a bishop for two pawns. And not because it really gave me an attack, but because I realized with what he was doing, that bishop wasn't going to be doing very much for me. But removing those two pawns would give me a knight that could be doing a whole lot. And given that my position was looking more and more bleak by the move, that was really all I needed to say, okay. Well, I have these two pieces, this bishop and knight, that together are doing nothing. But if I give up the bishop for two pawns, I get a knight that is doing a lot. Mm-hmm. And just just making that decision, not really going any deeper than that, I just like saw his entire demeanor change. It was like, when I played that move, at first he starts calculating to see if there's a tactic he missed. So he spends five or ten minutes just looking to see if he missed something concrete. And I'm chuckling to myself because if it's there, I don't see it. I didn't look for it. But what but what I had was just this intuition that like why would I keep these two clunky pieces around when I could turn them into one good piece? Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually he was able to get back into that game only by and this is kind of showing a maturity in his play. He found a series of moves that completely neutralized that good knight, took away all of its possible squares, eventually forcing me to trade it off. And then he the game was a draw, but it ended up he had a big edge only because he neutralized that piece. But when he was thinking purely combinationally, he didn't even consider a move that struck me as obvious from this natural standpoint of improving my pieces and where they belong. And it was only when he was able to like find this way to neutralize that, again, not so much calculating, but really, but really just like intuiting how to get rid of this advantage by understanding that my knight had a lot of scope and wanted to be all over the board and restricting it, that he got back into the game. Um, and I think, so, so, and so that's one thought is just this, um, how it seems like a lot of times when someone, old men like us, whenever we hold our own against children, it seems to be because we're relying on that sense. And I think that 
points out something else that's so funny is we're talking about these the sense as something natural or something intuitive, which gives gives the gives the uh, appearance of something like immediate, right? But then mm -hmm. this is kind of paradoxical because we're talking about developing an intuition. And you might think of the intuition or the natural as the things that we don't have to develop. And the calculational combinational skills is the things we have to develop. But these prodigious kids have the combinational ability right away. And it's the, intuit, it's the intuition, it's the naturalness that they have to develop. So that's, that's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's it, uh, until you until you phrased it that way, I didn't realize how paradoxical that is. I mean, like I, I guess I don't. I, I guess maybe it has to do with the fact that uh, being able to train your calculation skills, you know, being able to grind out tactics, is easier. Um, is it's easier to prescribe, you know, when you're when you're working with like a six or seven year old kid, you can say, hey, I want you to do uh, tactics trainer on chess.com and reach a, a rating of uh, 2000, for example. Um, yeah, and then they can the just go to work. Because the, the tactics trainer is going to be every puzzle either ends in checkmate, or it ends in winning material or very rarely in avoiding checkmate. And those are very concrete outcomes. There's either a checkmate or there isn't. You either have more material points than they do or you don't. You either got checkmated or you didn't. So in the understanding of things like where the pieces belong on the board, there's nothing very abstract to teach them. You just teach them as long as they can identify a checkmate and count to nine, they can go on tactics training. Right, right. And I, I mean, I, I think just for the, uh, the well-rounded chess player, uh, whether it, it, this is kind of regardless of what your rating is, um, but it, it, it becomes more important the higher you go. Um, you really need that balance of calculation and um, intuition. Um, I guess uh, taking just taking a step back, going to the analogy of just that objective reasoning and sense and the subjective appreciation. Uh, you need you really need both of them. And uh, I, I mean, I always love doing this. I, I say that I've said that chess is the Petri dish of life. Uh, JJ, what would you say? Like, how do you take this information? Because it it might seem sort of esoteric to uh, the non chess players out there. But uh, like, how do you take this subjectivity versus objectivity discussion and try to apply it in your life? Yeah, um, what a wonderful question. Um, I think, I mean, <laughs> you know, I know what you're asking, but chess is a big part of my life. So one thing I try and do is remind myself to not get sucked into the trap of only calculating when I play chess. Um, mm -hmm. So I do want to say that just like reminding myself to, to, that like it's to just ask these questions. And if you don't calculate carefully and you miss something, the worst thing that happened is you lose a game of chess. I lose dozens of games of chess every single day. Um, but becoming, developing these sorts of senses by asking, by forcing yourself to pay attention instead to the subjective just is a nice reminder to make for my chess game that is, I think, worked wonders. But I think you're asking about the, the, the like, 20% of my life that isn't chess. Yeah. And there, I mean, I think... Well, you know, 
I'm curious what you're going to say too, and then I might bounce off of that. But um, how do you apply this lesson to your life? So I I look at the way that I play the game. So I'm um I'm like a highly intuitive player. Um, when I'm when I'm playing in slow tournaments, I'm usually moving really quickly, just because I'm. I mean, I'm I am calculating. It's it's not like I'm I'm uh, totally lazy, but um, I'm usually calculating on my opponent's time. But I generally rely more on my feel for the game um, rather than primarily being an objective calculator. And maybe maybe that's why I love the Alpha Zero game so much and the Leela games that we've been able to see in the TCEC Super Final. But yeah, for me, I've always uh, been able to just trust my gut and the stuff that I do in life. Uh, I've been blessed to not really experience anxiety in almost anything that I do, which is, I know, um, com- a, a common problem for a lot of individuals. But for me, I like I guess that part of my brain doesn't really work. And so I uh, very rarely will experience anxiety and that's because i've i guess over time been able to reinforce this strategy i have um in navigating life now the the dark side of that is you know sometimes when i should care a little bit more about something i don't just because i've reinforced like ah you know i'm gonna go with the flow and see what happens and um for me this is definitely something i'm working on in my chess game and in life in general, uh, trying to just, you know, take that step back and question, hey, do I really know what I'm doing here? Do I really, uh, like, should I be trusting myself so much here? And uh, like everything, I think it requires a delicate, delicate balance. Uh, at my core, you know, I am a very confident individual and I do trust my gut, but I think it does really benefit me both on and off the chessboard to uh, question myself every once in a while because when you don't question yourself then you're kind of assuming that you already know everything and when only when you can question yourself and you know question ideas that's when you really have an opportunity to learn and to grow Um, so that that's kind of how I would think about it in terms of my life. I love that. We're, we're, we're such opposites. I like, I like, I really suffer with anxiety and it's been like a lifelong struggle and like from like everything from like, yeah, I've, I've been working on it, but it's definitely something. And I think it's something that reflects in both of us at the chessboard. Like I've definitely seen you very calmly and confidently lose games of chess. And I've, I've had people come up to me and say, I saw you like, pacing during your game head in hands and assumed you were losing and came over and apparently you were just like calculating which variation to win so like um yeah so so we're very different there but um I love I love what you say and I love what you say about like recognizing that there's this difference between asking whether you should just be going with the flow or reflecting that that's different than doubting that you you don't have to be doubting yourself for like a non-confident person or something in order to be reflective. But I think something that um that I get from what we're talking about with chess is that um how when we think of when we think of our gut or something that's natural or something that's just like intuitive or that comes effortlessly almost to us, 
what I get from, from this discussion and from reflecting on intuition and naturalness in chess is that this subjective feeling is itself something that oftentimes I think not just in chess really is the result of a lot of learning and training. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that just because it feels natural to us doesn't mean that it's just this mind independent fact or that it's, it's not worth questioning not just in the sense of should I follow it, but questioning in the sense of where did this come from? Like, why do we have these intuitions we have about certain chess positions? Because we've studied a lot. Why do we sometimes have really bad intuitions about chess positions? Because both of us play way too much online blitz and as such like corrupt our intuitions based off of certain things. So our intuitions can be caused by what we've studied, who's taught us what, what we've learned. Um, they can also be corrupted by not by by bad habits. And I think that that's kind of the case for our gut and a lot of things. So I think that I take from this that um, I should really, when something does feel natural to me, I want to reflect on like how it became natural, how it was naturalized almost, right? That you have... Um, that like, and it's the same with other sorts of subjective art, that like certain art is considered good, but we can give a sort of historical analysis of how, of who decided that art was good for what reasons and why. And I'm not saying that means we should distrust our gut, but we, we should consider what's made it that way. And I think like, this is something that's a lesson I've kind of taken to heart in like my own journey in terms of making sense of myself as like a male bodied individual or like identifying using male pronouns and just like masculinity. Cause you know, the, like the, like the phrase toxic masculinity gets tossed around a lot or like we'll describe as like a lot of ways that people learn how to be, be a man or be masculine can be very aggressive, confrontational um, to like very independent and refusing to ask others for help. Lots of very, entitled to others time and attention lots of problems right so like thinking about like how have I learned how to see myself as a man and what parts of those do I want to hold on to and like really learn how to trust in myself and which of those do I see that were like kind of cultivated in me by sources I don't really like like uh you know aggressive sure. coaches porn you name it um and so like but all of it might feel natural to me but i can see the sources of what makes it feel natural and from there start to think about like what do i want to hold on to and i think a big part of that also is a social practice like chess players are constantly studying together teaching each other working together in part to see flaws in their own natural seeming reasoning and i think socially to think about you know like as a uh, cis het white dude who has certain perceptions of like what it means to be a man being able to talk to people who don't fit into those categories can like make me reflect on things that struck me as natural they're not natural because i'm just realizing if they're not universal then even if they appear very natural to me they were still like caused by various processes that if not worth rejecting in all cases are at least worth reflecting on and that's like a really strange I think to a lot of people but to me a very like very direct parallel to this notion of naturalness in chess sure and just being able to identify those experiences those individuals or, or whatever that really uh that really construct the core of your intuition in general um 
I've I've gotten a lot out of journaling um, and forcing myself to be really reflective of my thoughts. Um, meditation too. Uh, meditation. I, I always give I always give this analogy to people because I don't have a better way of describing it. Uh, for those that uh, wear glasses or wear contact lenses, uh, when you don't wear your glasses or your contacts. Um, you like vision is blurry. You can't really see shit. Um, but then when you put them on, like all of a sudden the world is clear. Um, I find at least for myself that when I'm meditating regularly, it's like I'm putting on my glasses for just like my overall perception. And that, that plays in not just at like a present level, like, um, mm-hmm. in the moment, it, it also plays in when I am really assessing, okay, uh, this, this, um, my friend snapped at me and I just got upset. Okay. Why did I just get upset with that? Um, well, I guess I got upset because, you know, he snapped at me last week too. And, um, maybe that's becoming a pattern. Um, being able to just dissect things, I, I think is very helpful and I I know for me because I am just such a natural like I naturally just go with the flow um having that opportunity to critically reflect on the motivations for my actions and my thoughts has just been super like therapeutic for me in pretty much every way yeah and like and I think just I love that. The only thing I want to add to that is like, we can think of those motivations, but we can even go further and be like, okay, but like, why, like, what are even the causes for the motivations, right? Like, maybe I'm angry because my friend snapped at me and they snapped at me last week. But why am I, what caused me to be angry at that rather than like another emotion? Well, you know, I've kind of been conditioned to not be directly confrontational. And this anger is a result of my frustration that I haven't been able to say anything mm. or that, you know, and so just like realizing that like, instead of then even though anger seems like a natural reaction to have in that situation be like, okay but what caught you know you talk to other people and realize that certain people aren't angry but like disappointed or upset with themselves that they're not able to communicate and you realize oh like this na- this natural reaction of anger is itself the product of various things that if not you know and this doesn't mean anger is bad in all cases but like just to realize, oh, this could have, I could, this something could have been caused differently, um, or and I could choose to cause it differently by thinking about it in the future, um, or thinking about like wh- wh- how I've been conditioned to have anger be my default to this, or versus something else. Right, and you know, I, I think that the way you explain that is just such a poignant example uh, for me. I mean, I, I would say neither of us really fit the the typical image of a a strong masculine figure as it's been kind of reinforced through just society and stereotypes in general. But I mean, I think that (laughs) I, I really could not care less. I could, I couldn't care less just because, um, I, I think it's more important and just more fulfilling when you are kind of aware of what those, uh, those biases are, whether or not internal or societal or both and being able to just, you know, truly express yourself in an unfiltered manner 
And mm. I mean, again, uh, it's probably the listeners are probably going to get tired of this, but I mean, it, it, it happens on the chessboard too. It's like whatever your style is and like however you play, I think the most yes. important thing is just you have to let it flow. You have to let it you have to let it out there. Uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. You know, like I know so many people who like consciously disown like norms of masculinity, but then will behave in ways that like I see as like being so informed by masculine entitlement. And then I see people who like identify as like a very tactically minded player. You know, and like that's an important identity to them or like not being tactical is an important identity to them. And then like I see decision making that is like so informed by like certain sorts of training that even if they have like explicitly disavowed it, they don't see how deep it goes. And so less of like just what you do or don't identify as and just more realizing how like everyone's been taught tactics who plays chess. Everyone who's grown up male bodies has been like male body has been in, has been like indoctrinated into certain norms of masculinity, not necessarily the same norms, but certain norms. And like even if you disavow them, they're going to like influence you and like being able to like reflect on that and like reflect on that style. It is something that is super knowledge of the chess. I'm happy you said that because that's like exactly the point I was going to make. Because like I know so many people who like have have are like students who've like shown me like oh I didn't want to go towards that variation because I'm not really a positional player. It's like mm. no, yeah. <laughs> I don't care <laughs> if you saw it and you saw that it looked good and your reasoning was that's not me like. Oh no. Or like you didn't think that was you, but like your reasoning suggested otherwise. Or like you said that's not what interests you, but um you seem to still be making these like you're I'm gonna be less tactical now, but like your decisions are still ultimately being informed by how you've been brought up with these tactical intuitions. Yeah, and those self-defeating kind of attitudes, I I think especially that example you just gave, um, they and I'm not, I, I might be overstepping on this because, of course, I don't know this student, but I'm sure that that sort of attitude probably pervades in other aspects of uh, his or her life. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, of course, I don't, I, I just, I bring this up because I think, I, I don't know, I, I always use this, I always use this beautiful game as just an opportunity to reflect on myself, both strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, maybe, uh, Maybe for those listening that uh, do play chess, like uh, consider doing that yourselves. And if you guys don't play chess, but you're interested, uh, really look at it as kind of an opportunity to uh, an opportunity to look deeper within yourself. It's not just this uh, nerdy game, although JJ and I both are definitely nerdy. Um, it, they, 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 they've been listening. They, they, they gathered that. They gathered that already. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, it, it's it's way more than that. And I mean, I would definitely encourage everybody to uh, that has even some interest to give the game a go. Uh, Lee Chess, Chess.com, wherever. Uh, there's so many great places. And I think um, I think I will say I think something that got me really back into chess a couple of years ago was like realizing that playing tournament games where you really invest your entire self in playing for a long stretch of time but then going back and like going over those games yourself where the big question you're asking yourself is like why did i do that and sometimes the answer is oh i saw that bishop move and needed to stop it but other times the answers are i was starting to get anxious that my higher rated opponent was going to beat me and so i started making rash decisions and just that like 
how many of us, you know, like just don't make those sorts of reflections on why we did or didn't do things in other aspects of our life. So just like the opportunity to like focus so completely on one task and then be able to like reflect and then go deep on, deeper in those reflections is such a wonderful opportunity that attracts a certain kind of person that otherwise maybe doesn't do that. Absolutely. And I, I know for my own game, like that reflection is, again, something I need to do a little bit more of just because I'm mm. always like, I, I've always liked playing more than I've liked studying. But um, uh, yeah, I, I if I want to get to those next levels, I, I need to do more work on that end. Um, JJ, I think this is a great place to wrap it up. Um, I know totally. that you, I know you just started a Twitch channel and uh, also have a Twitter. Do you want to uh, sh- uh, give yourself a plug for the listeners? Yes, being new to the world, the chess social world in this way is very new to me. But you can follow my Twitch channel, Chess Feels. That's the word chess and the word feels, one word, F-E-E-L-S, or at Chessfields on Twitter. You, depending on time of listen, could be my first follower. This is very new to me. <laughs> um, but I, have, I am being guided by a master of the craft whose Twitch channel is. I wouldn't say I'm a master of the craft, but I am uh, at twitch.tv slash Akash. That's A-A-K-A-A-S-H. Um, you guys can check me out there. It's usually a pretty chill time. Awesome. Yeah, and I think in the near future we'll be playing a match on your channel against each other, so that should be a good good chance to yeah, check us both out. And I mean, I would love to do more of these just like conversations just about random stuff. Uh, I think it's very fun and uh, could be useful. I, I know this is just a recorded episode, but maybe we could do something um, on live stream as well. That's a great idea. You know, I think we're both going to be home for a while. I think that's a great idea. We got to use our time somehow. We got it. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, no problem, JJ. And uh, this is a great conversation. I'm so glad that you were the first guest of the podcast. And um, to everybody that's listening, uh, thank you so much. And until next time, peace. Thank you to everybody for listening to the first episode of Podcast by Akash. Um, I really enjoyed doing this, and I would love to hear any feedback that you have. Um, You can give me feedback both on the YouTube video in the comments section or on Twitch when I'm streaming. If you'd like to check me out on Twitch, my channel name is just Akash, so twitch.tv slash Akash, spelled with four A's, A-A-K-A-A-S-H. Thank you so much, and until next time.